2,000 years ago, there was a, a man who was a fisherman on the north shore of a lake. It's about 13 miles long and about seven miles wide in the land of Israel. And he, along with his brother, uh, lived in a town called Bethsaida. Last week, I was privileged to walk the ruins of what is commonly known as Bethsaida. And my thoughts went to this fellow. He was given a nickname by Jesus along with his brother. The nickname was Thunderson. Would you like to have the name Thunderson? Now, that's a Scandinavian uh, way of saying it, but uh, son of thunder, right? Um, it kind of suggests that he's not this meek, mild kind of fellow, but kind of a brash fisherman. And yet, he was transformed by the power of his relationship with Jesus Christ. Transformed to the place where he was known as the messenger of love. In fact, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he ate supper with Jesus, and the Bible says that he leaned up against Jesus as they reclined at table. He was in a position of favor and physical proximity to the Savior. He was a, a person transformed from a person of thunder to a person of love. Fast forward 60 years. This man no longer lives in Israel. Instead, he has been arrested by the Roman authorities and has been put into exile on an island. Um, it's called Patmos, this island. And it is there, he's worshiping the Lord on a Sunday morning when he is visited once again by his old friend, Jesus. Only this time, it is Jesus as he has never known him before. For that description, John gives a very clear picture of Jesus, a different picture than he had encountered previously, but one that is helpful for us if we are to understand the good news of Jesus Christ and what it means for every one of us. It's Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I invite you to stand for the reading of Scripture this morning. Revelation 1, 12 through 18. Here's what we're going to discover. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. This glory overwhelms us, but we need not fear because of what He did for us in dying for our sins and rising from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. This glory will overwhelm us, as we'll see in a moment. But we need not fear because of what Jesus has done for us in dying for our sins and rising from the dead. Revelation 1, 12 through 18. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. 
And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one, I died And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Please have a seat. This description in verses 12 through 16 is Jesus as described by one of his closest friends on earth. Sixty years after having spent time with Jesus Here on earth, John, there on an island, exiled, worshiping the Lord, encounters Jesus once again. And the tension builds. Verse 12, he encounters Jesus, and, and then he turns to see the voice that was speaking to me, which is an interesting phrase. It says how discombobulated John was. You don't turn to see a voice. But he does. He he turns to see the voice. He doesn't see the voice. Instead, he sees seven golden lampstands. Now, we know from verse 20, which we did not read, that the lampstands represent the seven churches which are being sent this revelation. Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. It's interesting to describe a picture of the church as a lampstand. It's not just some little tiny thing. It's a great big thing with great big flames. And the idea is that the church is to shine forth into the world, the light of the world, shine it. And Jesus walks among the churches. Do we realize, do we have any idea of this truth that Jesus is present in his church. Jesus is there in his church. Oh, I know that people love to complain about the church, sometimes with some merit, right? Uh, People can complain about how the church has mistreated them, and sometimes with some merit. There are people who will say that they do not need the church, all we need is Jesus, But that's not the view of Jesus about the church. Jesus is present in the churches. If you want to find Jesus, you find him among his people. If you love Jesus, you love the church. Where will you find Jesus? In the midst of the churches is where you will find him. Now, he's described in verse 13 
as one like a son of man, a human figure. Let's not forget that Jesus is truly God, yes, but truly human. This is a title from Daniel chapter 7, where it says, Daniel says, I saw in night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. There's the Son of Man coming before God the Father. And to this Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man. He is man with a capital M. The man above all men, the ruler of all men, the king of all people, Jesus Christ. Jesus describes himself that way in Mark 13. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Let's look at his clothing Verse 13, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This is the description of a royal position, perhaps even a priestly one. Daniel chapter 10 has a similar depiction when it says that, uh, it, it says, uh, um, there was a man, Daniel 10.5, clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His, his rank is the highest. His dignity is unsurpassed. This long robe and golden sash around his chest speak of royalty and of being the go-between between people and God. The long robe means his majesty, and the golden sash around his chest is something a little bit like, if you want to describe it as, you know, the, the little sash that Miss America wears describing her title, or perhaps a, a heavyweight boxer wearing his belt that describes who he is. He's the champion of the world. Only this golden sash says, king of the universe. He's the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. His head and his hair were white. Description of purity. The Patmos region where John was exiled was well known for having the purest wool fibers. And yet Jesus is purer still. It's pure. Absolute purity. There isn't any flaw or fault or anything that is distorted. He is absolute perfection. His eyes are like fire. This has to do with Jesus' perception of things. His divine knowledge penetrates to the real story. And this is becoming more and more evident of how much we need Jesus in our lives as we look at the world around us and how do you know whether it's true news or fake news? How do you know whether something is true and whether someone who's depicting themselves as something, whether you can believe them or not? How do you know these things? 
And the answer is more and more increasingly so. We can't, we don't know. Not only don't we know, we can't know. And yet Jesus' eyes are like fire. He is intelligent holiness. The penetrating knowledge of the Son of God shows us that his wrath is not arbitrary to some random people whom he dislikes. Rather, his revulsion at sin is perfect in its knowledge of the real story. Now, this is comforting to us on one level, comforting to us in that, man, if we've had injustice done to us, there's someone who knows and sees and understands and will get the thing straightened out. His name is Jesus. That's comforting. But it's also frightening, isn't it? Because that same one who knows with absolute perfection about everybody else's injustices and problems also knows mine. He sees with absolute perfection the ways in which I have wronged and hurt and broken and rebelled. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, as though still a glow from a furnace. This is Christ's glory and strength. When Ezekiel has a vision of God, its description of his description, his legs were straight, the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, like the appearance of lightning. Um, Jesus' feet suggests here that he is absolute strength, and he knows his direction. Jesus knows where he is going. He knows what he is doing with absolute perfection. There will never be a moment where Jesus goes, hmm, that took me by surprise. I, I don't know what to do about that. There will never be a moment where the Lord of glory will say such a thing. He knows exactly everything that's happening, everything that will happen, and he knows exactly what he's going to do and where he is going. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In verse 10, it said that his voice was like a trumpet. Here, it's like the roar of many waters. Either way, it's loud. <laughs> it's a loud voice. Jesus has impressive authority and power. His voice projects power. Ezekiel 43, the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. I don't know if you've ever been around something like Niagara Falls where the pounding of the water was so, is so loud that you have to yell into the ear of your neighbor in order to have them hear you. But that's the idea, that he is so powerful. And you know, it's fascinating to me. Whenever you are around, go sometime to a waterfall, and it doesn't matter how big or small the waterfall is, people are fascinated by waterfalls, aren't they? They're just fascinated by it. Like, wow, it's amazing, water falling. <laughs> I don't know what it is about it. There's something that fascinates us about it. And yet Jesus' voice is like the greatest of waters ever. Power. 
He holds the seven stars in his right hand. Verse 15. This means control, it means safekeeping, it means favor, protection. We find out that these seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. I happen to think it means perhaps pastoral leaders. Isn't it incredible that the Lord Jesus holds the leaders of churches in his hand? That's how much he loves the church. He holds the leaders of churches in his hand. I have felt that holding many times in my life. Out of his mouth, it says, comes a sharp, two-edged sword. This is judgment for Jesus' enemies. He does not wield a sword merely to intimidate. It's not just there to intimidate people. He actually is not just going to intimidate people. He's going to use the sword. Isaiah 11 describes this, there'll come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That is, the kingdom of Israel is going to be destroyed, but there's a little shoot that comes out of the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The, the town of Nazareth, the word branch is Nazare, and the town of Nazareth you might want to call branch town. Out of branch town comes a branch from the root of David the stump of Jesse, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding of counsel and might of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. It's comforting to know, isn't it? Jesus will overcome his enemies and there are many enemies to Christ and his cross these days. They will all be defeated as Jesus will one day wield his sword. Again, that's a great comfort to us, but also we should recognize it matters of highest importance whether or not we are on the Lord's side. As Lincoln famously said, it doesn't matter whether God's on our side. The question is whether we're on God's side. <laughs> His face is like the sun shining in full strength. This is the brightness of his glory. End of verse 16. There was a moment in John's life when he saw that very briefly. There was a time in Matthew chapter 17, other gospels record it, where it says that Jesus was transfigured before them. The disciples never got over that. Uh, Peter describes it in uh, one of his, I think it's Second Peter. Uh, John says in John 1.14, we beheld his glory, glory is of the one and only, full of grace and truth. Uh, Matthew 17 says he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light. For just a brief moment, they saw Jesus, but it was just a brief time. Now John sees Jesus here in Revelation chapter 1 in the fullness of all of that. 
He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. For the Lord God is a sun and shield, Psalm 84.11. Jesus has the power and glory of the sun shining in full strength and more. Well, that's how John sees Jesus as he is worshiping the Lord 60 years after having met the Savior, exiled on this little island, worshiping the Lord on the Lord's day, Jesus appears to him and this is what he sees. Now in the next few verses, we don't just see a picture of Jesus as described by one of his closest friends, but now we see Jesus as he describes himself. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. How does John respond to this uh, appearance of Jesus before him? You might say, well, you know, as, as, a, as John Thunderson, he could just kind of assert his power. He's done with that. That life is over. He's the apostle of love. And you might say, well, maybe he just embraces Jesus. Jesus! And goes and Runs and No, that's not how he responds either. Look at how he responds. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Do we have such an attitude as John's in the presence of such glory? Ezekiel chapter 1, when Ezekiel has this vision of God, he says, when I saw it, I fell on my face. Daniel chapter 8, when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Daniel chapter 10, I heard the sound of his words. As I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face. When Jesus was about to be arrested in John 18, Jesus said to the guys that were about to arrest him, I am he, and they drew back and fell on the ground. Earlier this week, I was in the ruins of the room where Paul stood before Agrippa and gave his testimony of defense in Acts 26. And Paul's testimony goes as, uh, in this way, at midday, O king, talking to Agrippa, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So whether it's Ezekiel or Daniel, or the people arresting Jesus, or Saul who's on his way to kill Christians, when they see Jesus as he really is, as they've never seen him before, they're all laid out. They're all on the ground. How do we respond to this revelation? Hopefully we respond in the same way, blown right out of our complacency, right out of our pride, right out of our trying to live life on our own for our own way, and we are all laid out before the glory of the resurrected 
Son of God. But notice that that's not where Jesus wants us to stay. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. Think about all the times that Jesus and John Thunderson had been together 60 years before. In the boat, on storms, walking, walking all over the place, believe me. <laughs> um, at mealtime, that last supper leaning against Jesus, and now Jesus comes to him and he lays his right hand on John. The hand that holds the seven stars now holds a person. It's a sign of blessing to lay your hand on someone. It's a sign of blessing. He's blessing John. And he says, verse 17, fear not. It's the same message as given whenever God appears to people in the Bible. When God appeared to Abraham, first words, fear not. When he appears to Jacob, fear not. When he appears to Moses in the burning bush, fear not. To Jeremiah, fear not. Daniel, fear not. John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, fear not. The shepherds in Bethlehem, fear not. And now John here, fear not. Don't be afraid. If we could take all of the fears that are added up in this room and put them in a big pile, the room would be so full we couldn't be in here, could we? If we somehow managed to physically make them manifest. And yet, this Jesus takes them all away. Fear not. Why shouldn't we be afraid? Well, because of Jesus' description of himself now. Look, who Jesus is. I am. He's the I am of Exodus chapter 3. I am the first and the last. He's in control of all of human history. He's the living one, the eternally self-existent God. That's who Jesus is, and that's why we don't have to be afraid, because of who he is. We are also not afraid because of what he has done. I died, he said. Now, we spent all of the service at Good Friday talking about what that means. He didn't just die as an example. He didn't just die as a martyr. He died as the payment for our sin. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The reason we don't have to be afraid of the future or of being in the presence of the perfectly holy God is that Jesus died for our sins. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid because of who Jesus is. We don't have to be afraid because of what Jesus did. And now we don't have to be afraid because of how Jesus triumphed. It says... Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and now 
Look at how Jesus triumphed. Behold, I am alive forevermore. He conquered death. This is the wondrous news of Easter. I am alive forever. So we are not afraid because of who Jesus is. We are not afraid because of what Jesus did. We are not afraid because of how Jesus triumphed. And now look at the last sentence, which is the real one for us. He says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. He is the rightful judge of the universe and of every one of us. And if we are rightly related to him, we don't have to worry about anything. We don't have to worry about dying, and we don't have to worry about where we're going after we die, because he's the one who holds the keys. Now, this word Hades is not just a word for the bad place. In the, New Te- in the Old and New Testament, it's, a, it's the place of the dead. And that is that Jesus is in charge of the disposition of this entire world and everyone in it. He's the rightful king. And so if we are rightly related to the rightful king, we don't have to be afraid because he holds the keys. Now think about this description. First of John about Jesus, and then Jesus about himself. And think about your own life. How do those match up? You see, the big idea of this section of Scripture is this. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. You see that, don't you? This glory overwhelms us. We fall at his feet as though dead but we don't have to be afraid because of what he did for us, dying for our sins and rising from the dead. The goal for the Christian then is to love and worship the exalted Christ, to faithfully represent him on the earth. The goal for the church is to love and worship the exalted Christ and to faithfully represent him on the earth. And here's the question I have for you. Do you know him? Do you know him? Have you personally come to a place where you say, I forsake my sin, I run to Christ, I ask him to forgive me of my sin by what he did at the cross, I believe he rose from the dead, I believe he's the Lord of glory, I believe he has the keys of death and Hades, and he'll take me to be with, me, with him where he is, and I will enjoy him forever. Do you know him? You can. You can know him right now. Just say, Lord, forgive me of my sin by what you did at the cross. I believe you are the Lord of glory, and I trust in you with my life. This is what these who were baptized are confessing. It's what they're saying, I am placing my life right now and everything that happens through eternity in the hands of Jesus Christ. And it is an adventure of knowing Christ as you have never known him before. Please pray with me.
Some of you may have never been in a church before. This is your first time at a church. You can put your faith in Christ right now. You, can, you don't have to have been in church a hundred times. You can just say right now, Lord, forgive me of my sin by what you did at the cross. I, I believe you died for my sins, that you rose from the dead, and I, I'm throwing my lot in with you. I'm trusting you just like John Thunderson did. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you with my life and my eternal destiny. The Bible says whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Others of us perhaps have come to church from time to time and it's perhaps become a good habit to come on Easter or other holidays, but you've never really personally placed your faith in Jesus to forgive you of your sin. And the Lord is calling you right now to say this is your moment. This is the time to trust Christ. Will you do it right now? There are others who perhaps have come to church week after week and have never really personally come to a place of faith in Christ. And this too is a moment for you to say, everything before was designed to lead me to this moment where I will believe in Jesus and I'm believing in Him right now. Will you do so? Others perhaps have been walking with a degree of complacency. Yeah, I've, I put my faith in Christ, but I've, I've been wandering all over the place. I, I'm unfocused. I, I really don't have an affection for Christ like I should. Will you look at Jesus right now and say, Lord, forgive me for my complacency and teach me to be a white-hot worshiper of you? There are perhaps others who are saying, I got a lot of questions about this. I'm not ready to make a commitment yet, but I, I'm curious. I'd love to know more. All of our pastors would be delighted to share with you and help get your questions answered. There's a verse in the Bible just for you. It's Hebrews 11:6. It says that the Lord is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, who earnestly seek him. Would you pray this prayer right now and say, Lord, I, I don't understand all this, but I'd like to know more and I'd like to get my questions answered. Would you help me in my search? I want to know you. And I'm asking you to reveal yourself to me. I believe with all my heart that the Lord will answer that prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the Lord of glory. We would all be laid down in abject fear were we to see you as you really are. Thank you that you do not leave us there, but because of who you are, what you've done, how you've triumphed, and the keys you hold, we do not have to be afraid.
We don't have to be afraid in life. We do not have to be afraid in death. You have triumphed. This morning, we worship you, the Lord of glory. Amen.